Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about the past weekend of racing, which was awesome. Tadej Pogacar wins Strada Bianchi with really a, kind of a mind-blowing 50-kilometer solo attack. Wout Van Aert, Primoz Roglic, Christophe Laporte absolutely shred everybody at the opening stage of Paris-Nice on Sunday morning. And then came back on Monday and just blew the race up in the crosswinds on stage two. They didn't get the win. Fabio Jakobsen won that, which was impressive in itself. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then Torino Adriatico started on Monday as well, which gives us, I don't know if this has ever happened, but the Tade Pogacar, Remco Evenepoel head-to-head we've all been waiting for. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. It comes out minimum once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up right now. Link in the show notes. There's also a paid edition if you want daily Grand Tour coverage and breakdowns of every major race, as well as discounts to select brands like FastCat Coaching, Curie Switzerland, Stages Cycling. That is also available. You can find all the information at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, back to the racing. Strada Bianchi, I know this is like three or four days after the fact. Uh, these these Saturday Italian races screw me up. It's really hard to, to, to figure out a time to record to cover everything. But my big written breakdown already went out yesterday, so I don't want to overlap too much with that. But I just wanted to talk about um, just bathe in in how good Tadej Pogacar is. I mean, this was really impressive. Coming into the race, I thought that there was a good chance he wins. The race is just so hard. Um, if, if you're unfamiliar with Strada, it's just a gorgeous race through Tuscany. I think one of the most beautiful races in cycling. Um, people love it. People call it the sixth monument. Um, I, I'm not, the, as far as a race, as, as far as like a scenic tour and a spectacle, it's amazing. As far as a race, it, it's a little, a little simplistic. The race is so difficult, um, especially when you get into like the last 60K, that it tends to just, just be the, the strongest racer wins. Um, you might be asking, like, isn't that like every bike race? But the monuments are quite different, and especially the the cobbled monuments. There's so much nuance that goes into that. Um, and there even was a point with 51 or 52K to go where Tim Wellens attacked on kind of a rolling gravel section and Tadej Pogacar was out of position. If that happens at Milano San Remo or a cobbled race, he's probably not able to recover from it. But because Strata's more wide open and it's more like strength-based, he could quite easily recover and then counterattack and thought, hey, you know what? Instead of trying to like fight for position and like stay up front, why don't I just go off the front? Then I don't have to deal with anybody. And I'll just ride solo to the finish line. And 50 kilometers is a long ways for a solo attack. I think the last time I saw that at a big race was Matthew Vanderpool at last year's Torino Adriatico, which incidentally he was almost chased down by Tadej Pogacar. But not to take that's not to take anything away from the race. It's a very cool race, but I'm just just saying it is quite short relative to a monument. It's it's sub 200 kilometers, which most monuments are around 250 kilometers, and um, it's more straightforward, which is good. I mean, we're still early in the season, and it's it's an interesting race where you see one day riders competing against Grand Tour riders, and I think. On like a more macro level, we're seeing those lines blur in general in professional cycling. Where we look at the first, second, and third of Strada, it's Pogacar wins, Valverde's second, Casper Askren's third. Pogacar is a Tour de France winner, two-time Tour de France winner. You could obviously designate him as a Grand Tour racer. Alejandro Valverde is kind of a mix. Um, he's won one Grand Tour in his career. He's probably more of a stage hunter and one-day rider. 
And then Casper Askren's never going to win a Grand Tour. He's a classic specialist, winner of Tour of Flanders last year. So you just have this really interesting mix of of Grand Tour and classic specialists that is is quite interesting and it is really unique because I think that when kind of cements Pogacar's status as the best rider in the world, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue against that. Um, I know um, there's a certain host of the Slow Ride podcast who would probably say Matthew Vanderpool is the best rider in the world and would 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 fight me to the death on that take. But you know, a Vanderpool's not racing, and b you know even if Vanderpool is is better than Pogacar at the one days, which you know just going by the numbers. I don't think he is, or he's definitely not more decorated than Pogacar. Pogacar's won a monument, and now the, the quote-unquote sixth monument. Those are the last two one-day races he's taken part in. Tour Lombardio that he won, and then Strada Bianchi. Um, that was at the end, tail end of 2021. This is the beginning of 2022. So he's on a pretty good tear here. Um, not Actually, not seen anything quite like this. He's 100% so far for the year. He'll probably win the Tour de France again this year. If he does the Vuelta, he'll probably win that. I wouldn't be shocked if he wins another monument. Um, San Remo could be a little tough for him. Usually have to be a quite fast sprinter to win that, but it's not out of reach for him. Wouldn't be shocked if he wins Liege-Bastogne-Liege again, but I don't think he could win, at least in the short term, um, Paris-Roubaix. That, that would be out of, out of reach for him. I have to imagine he's just too light. Um, you have to be such a big unit as the Aussies stay on the cobblestones to to just handle the the jostling there. Um he probably could win Tour of Flanders. Um he would be quite small for a Tour of Flanders winner. We saw Nibali kind of struggle there due to like lack of raw power. Um he he's a great, obviously a great racer, did did well, relative did well all things considered, but was popped off um a stronger rider's wheel the year that he was really targeting it. But I think Pogacar could win if, if things went in his favor at a race like Tour of Flanders. So he can win pretty much everything, just not uh, Perrube at this point. I'm not ruling it out. In the future, he's probably one of the only riders in the Peloton that can win all five monuments and all three Grand Tours. So that would be something to see. But I think walking away from this weekend, you just have to be thinking he's the best racer in the world. Um, he is just on a tear and he's only 23 years old. So um Eddie Merckx, the greatest rider of all time uh, in general consensus, even said after the race that he thinks Pogacar could be even better than him, if, or good, as good as, if not better. Um, the numbers bear it out. At, at the same age, they're, they're at relatively the same success level. The only thing is Pogacar would have to like keep this up for another 10 years to really surpass Merckx. And what happens with um, professional riders is it's tempting to look at someone that's 19 and really good and be like, wow, in 10 years, they're still going to be winning the Tour de France. But that's not really how it works. It, generally, you get like a five to seven year period of, of really, really good riding. Um, and that might be from 25 years old to 32. It might be from 21 to 28. You, it doesn't really stretch out as much as people think it is. So you can be a little fooled, like when Egan Bernal wins the Tour de France at the age of 21 to be like, whoa, he's going to be the winner for the next 10 years. But stuff happens, new riders come along, you, you tend just to not be able to hold that level for that long. And you even look at someone like Tom Boonen, who is, you know, he has extreme longevity in his career. He was good from his first pro season in 2002 to his last in 2017. But his monument wins are all stuffed in a seven year period between 2005 and 2012. So um, you just want to be careful when you 
see a, a rider so young being so dominant to be like, wow, they're going to be winning the next 10 Tour de France is because stuff does change and there usually is a shelf life on, on your domination. But at least for now, I think he's the best. It's hard to imagine anyone beating him in any race that he targets this year, which is saying something. It's very hard to win bike races, uh, especially single day bike races. Um, we saw Julian Alaphilippe you know, take a really hard fall with 100k to go, which also brought down Pogacar. And stuff like that can just disrupt your performance. It's hard to tell um, what exactly was going on with Alaphilippe because he did crash very hard, but um, you know, even 50, just 50k after that crash, he, he looked really good. Um, right before Pogacar attacked, he looked, I thought he looked even better than Pogacar. He was positioning himself better. Um, but as soon as Pogacar got off the front, and Alaphilippe was the one who kind of let the gap go when he finally attacked with 49.3k to go to jostle them loose. Um, Alaphilippe didn't quite look the same after that. He was kind of like back talking to his team car, looking upset, um, got dropped after that. It's really difficult for me to tell if that's like uh, Alaphilippe being emotional and kind of giving up when Pogacar's riding away, or if he really was either out of shape or struggling from that crash. Um, he hasn't been great this year. I, I think I noted this in my pre-race chatter, either on the podcast or in the newsletter, but he's not won a race so far. And even when he looked good at the Tour of Provence, you know, he cracked pretty hard on that final day and Nairo Quintana ran, rode away for the overall win. So something to keep an eye on. Um, he, he's dazzled enough that it's almost like a sleight of hand that can fool you, but he hasn't been fantastic. And speaking of fantastic, and the absolute opposite of this, Alejandro Valverde, who gets second, wasn't even visible when the when Pogacar was going. Didn't even really notice him in the race. And then he just, he has a unique ability to just kind of be like, well, Pogacar is good. Um, I'm not going to try to chase him. I'm just going to focus on everyone else and I'll be the best of the rest. And he got, you know, he got within 36 seconds of him at the end. He's the only rider who could really close the gap. Um, it's tempting to be like, well, maybe he could have won the race if he would have started chasing early. But that's not Valverde's style. He sits in, let, lets riders, like maybe overeager riders like Alaphilippe burn themselves out. And then when he gets closer to the finish, he'll, he'll race for that second place like it's a win. And he'll just slowly pick you off. And we saw him drop Casper Askren, who's a classics or monument winner in his prime in the final few kilometers. So. Really impressive ride from Valverde. Um, he probably gives up a few big wins, or he's given up a few big wins in his career by his, you know, I would say, conservative racing. Some people might say he's like a wheel sucker. I don't really believe that that's even a thing because you're supposed to be drafting off people. But he, he's gotten himself a lot of podium finishes at races where he's maybe not even one of the top three riders physically. Um, I think that's exactly what happened on Saturday. I think Valverde didn't come into this race as like an outstanding in an outstanding physical form. I think there was probably like Quinn Simmons, if you put them on a trainer and had them do a test right now, Quinn Simmons would be stronger than Valverde, but he's such a good racer and he's so smart with how he expends his energy that he could grab a podium here in what really is a young man's race. I think the average age of the winner over the past eight years is 26 years old. So the fact that he's 41 and doing that it's really impressive. And the last thing, there's a lot, there's a lot to cover at Strata. It was a really interesting race. If you want to read all the takeaways, you can go look at the breakdown in the show notes. So I won't rehash them here. But um, one thing I want, one, two other things I wanted to note were when Pagachar's attack went, for, it was like kind of a flurry of attacks started by Tim Wellens with 51.8K to go. Um, it, this is exactly where the 
leading or like eventual winning move has gotten clear in the, in the last two editions before this in 2020 and 2021. Just it's on gravel and they, they start hitting some rollers and it, it usually decants the race out and you'll get, you know, a strong group of like 10 riders and then the winner will come from that group of 10. What we, what we saw on Sunday or on Saturday was similar to that, except the lead group was just Tade Pogacar. Um, he just thought it'd be easier to ride by himself than deal with the complexities of a group. This is a very impressive physical performance, nothing to take away from that. But I wonder if part of this is, you know, Pogacar has noticed what a lot of people have noticed, that a lot of these races are being won solo. I mean, we've had two World Tour one-day races so far in 2022, and both have been won by solo riders. And since the COVID break in 2020, and particularly last year in 2021, I think like 47% of World Tour races were won by solo riders. That's unusual. That used to not happen as much. Solo wins were extremely rare. But, you know, what happens is these chase groups are so, have such poor organization, and which, which kind of makes sense. Because if you're in a chase group and you don't have any teammates, if you work, you're going to work so somebody else wins. It doesn't really make any sense to work. You, you either have a strong group of teammates around who can pull back a rider like Pogacar or at least hold the gap steady, and then you can try to bridge it at the end of the race. Um, but if you're just in there with 10 other guys from 10 other teams, why would you work? Because if you do work, someone else is going to win. So everyone's incentivized to work as little as possible, which means the solo rider it actually has the advantage, even though they have to do technically more quote-unquote work, because they're in complete agreement with the other people in the breakaway, which are nobody. It's just themselves. You can easily find an agreement within your own mind than you can 10 other people with 10 other incentives and a willingness to win. So it's almost, we've, we're seeing chase groups break down, which is seeing the rise of solo riders. But in my opinion, it's, I, it, it's actually the logical thing to happen. It actually never made sense in the past that so many breakaways were pulled back by chase groups because that rider who does all the work doesn't actually win. So you might as well have rolled the dice, wait for somebody else to try to do the work and win the race yourself. Um, the question is, why is this happening? It's undeniably a trend. Um, I'm just wondering why it's happening so much now. You know, COVID changed a lot about cycling. That kind of, we took like six, seven months off, came back. The sport's similar, but, but quite a bit different. Um, it seems to be raced a lot harder. Um, it seems training is more refined. I, I would guess because all riders did was train. There was no races. And then they went into these races, like they went into the Tour de France without much pre-tour racing. And realize, hey, I can ride pretty stinking fast without racing. I can just train myself into shape. And perhaps it, you know, allowed teams and riders to reflect and they realized, hey, you know, you shouldn't work when you're in a break chasing or when you're in a group chasing a solo rider because you're not going to win. But now that everyone knows this, it actually makes it less likely that they will win because it gives the advantage back to the solo rider. You know, that combined with the fact that maybe a lot of these solo racers like you know, are very fit uh, would, would be my guess as to why that's happening. You know, like a top rider like Tadej Pogacar this week or Wout Van Aert last week at uh, Het Newsblad, they're so fit when they come into these races that you know, it's not as difficult for them to win solo as it was for others in the past. And, you know, we saw like Fabian Cancellara won Strada Bianca solo, but he was such an outlier um, where now it seems like more and more riders, like just very, very good riders can ride like 
the best solo riders used to in the past. So just an interesting thing to keep an eye on. I'll dive into this topic more and more as the season goes on, and, and we'll try to keep an eye on these like delinquent chase groups. Oh, and also this is like big win for UAE, who is having a great season, who's the best uh, team in the world tour at the moment. Um, tough to really read how well they did though, because when Pogaccio is at a race, he's so good. Sure, he wins. Does that really reflect on UAE? Um, but I think that's that's also why their strategy has been so good this year. They they don't maybe don't have like the strongest team in the world, but they have a pretty good team. They upgraded in the offseason. They can win races. Pogacar is not at, and then when he's at a race, they're dominating via Pogacar, which in the aggregate makes them an amazing team because they have the best rider in the world who can win almost any race. And then when he's not racing, they have some pretty good riders who can squeak out wins. Um, you know, might not make them the most well-rounded team, but it will make them potentially the best team on paper. We'll see. Quick Step almost always wins the World Tour win rankings. Um, I could see them losing it this year to UAE. We'll, we'll see how this plays out over the course of the season. But we got a Perinese Stage 1, which was the next day, and we saw like more domination from a few top riders, which I think is going to be a theme of the season. I think the sport is evolving, some might say devolving, where as the top, top riders with the most talent on the best teams perfect their training and in-race strategy, it's going to be harder and harder for less well-equipped teams and less talented riders to find the inefficiencies to win. And that's kind of exactly what we saw in Perini Stage 1. Um, it was a nervous race. I was, I was shocked at how nervous it was. Um, like I turned it on with like 100k to go and you could just see like Yumbo jostling at the front because everyone was so worried about crosswinds. You know, maybe this was like just made the race so tough that by the time they got to the last 10 kilometers that people were just hanging on for dear life, going through the motions. But when, when Yumbo came to the, to the front with around like 12K to go and sort of drilling it and Wout Van Aert's in second place, people should have noticed something was amiss here. Like this is not going to the line because why would Wout be so far up front this early if he's trying to win the sprint? With 6.5k to go, um, a Yumbo rider who's been leading pulls off. Christophe Laporte on Yumbo just takes this opportunity to just really drill it. I think he noticed that the race was pretty strung out at this point, and a lot of favorites for the sprint, as well as GC, were, were being lazy and, and were too far back. And they had Yumbo at the top three riders in the race. So the first three riders in this group were from Yumbo. They just absolute turn on the burners here. It's it's not a difficult climb. It's not a particularly long climb, but they're going up it so fast, and the race has been so hard before it that they just crack three of them plus Zendik Stebar off the front. What was shocking to me was just see to see Stebar initially make the selection and then just get like shot out the back like a cannon. I mean, he was like moving backwards with velocity. It was really really shocking stuff. But as soon as this happened, they get to the top of the climb and they have like a multiple second gap you know it might look like there's a chance to catch them but there's no chance to catch them because they are the three probably the three strongest riders in the race are these three and they are extremely motivated to work together because on their they're on the same team they all have aligned incentives everyone in the chase group is going to have misaligned incentives and so advantage to the Yumbo trio this is exactly why you never allow three riders from the same team to get away because they're just going to work seamlessly and you probably cannot catch them i think it would surprise people how fast three riders that strong working together can go relative to a chasing peloton um 
this this was like super consequential. I, I was actually shocked by some of the time gaps here. They they won by 22 seconds over the chasing Peloton. You add in time bonuses here. They gave the win to Christoph Laporte, who is not a GC contender. So Roglic got the six second time bonus for second, while Benart gets the four second time bonus for third. Um, immediately making those two the two favorites for the overall win. Then on this first stage, it's just like a knockout blow from Yumbo to every other GC contender like Adam Yates, Ben O'Connor, Alexander Vlasov, Naira Quintana, Danny Martinez are just like, boom, right there. They're like 20 something odd seconds back. Pierre Latour finished further up. Um, he's actually looked better than every other non-Yumbo GC contender. Um, so we'll be interesting to keep an eye on Latour as this race goes on. Um, Fabio Jakobsen won stage two after Yumbo blew it up in the crosswinds mid-stage. That's like a classic. I call it like kind of a crass name for it, but it's like the Perry Nice cocaine lines where you get up in the morning, you turn on TV, and it just it's these distinctive. It's these long flat roads of France um, with the green fields, and then the riders are just like lined out. They just like look like someone's lined up little tiny rows of cocaine or like waves coming in on a on a great surf break. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of times, you know, that's where you can win or lose the GC. Nairo is like famously good at making the front echelons here. And he, he did the same thing on stage two. Um, I think, you know, anyone who was anyone as far as GC was there. So Yumbo, it was kind of an interesting move from Yumbo. It was like impressive. It was a show of force. It shows that they are like the team to beat this year. They're not messing around. I think they are the strongest team in pro cycling this year. But it didn't really accomplish anything. I mean, Fabio, it, it got rid of Sam Bennett, who is who's really been struggling. Um, I thought Sam Bennett would be better this year. Thought the move to Bora might really help him, but you know, he's been on the outside looking in really um, at all these at, at all these. He can't even really get to the line to do a sprint finish, and when he does, he gets beat. So um, a little concerning. Something to keep an eye on here. But Fabio Jakobsen from Quick Step. Made the split. No, no shock. I mean, Quick Step's so good in the crosswinds. Jakobsen's from Holland. He'll be used to riding in crosswinds. I'm pretty sure that's all you do there. And um, it was interesting at the finish where Quick Step was obviously the favorite. They were leading out Jakobsen, and Laporte just shot past them. He kind of like blitzed their, their lead out train with Wout van Aert on his wheel. It looked like Wout had the win. Jakobsen, though, just so impressive to, to, he just recovered in like the split second he had to jump on Wout's wheel. He got on there and then he kind of came around him fairly easily for the win, showing that he is the best sprinter in the world. It's, it's undeniable at this point. He's won 13 out of his last 17 bunch sprints, which is a ridiculous win rate. Um, Wout did crash early in the stage, like in a moment of like odd inattentiveness. So that's potentially hurting his sprinting. It's also possible. Um, and then again, on stage three, he lost to Mads Pedersen in a really difficult stage with an uphill sprint, who I forgot was at this race. Um, it's just funny because he's a world champion quite recently. You'd think this actually would have been a perfect stage for him. I wasn't thinking about him at all. But it just shows how deep the talent is in these like difficult one, like in the one day hard sprint type race um you can just have a guy a guy quote unquote come out of the woodwork who's a former world champion win the stage and it's like oh yeah when we get to like tour flanders there's going to be a lot of potential contenders and really my only takeaways here are like wout's now lost two consecutive sprints that he probably should have won one of at least he definitely should have won today's stage three um and you wonder like is this just effects of the crash you know these are two sprints coming after he crashed on stage two 
Or is this kind of like the transformation? We saw this with like Tom Boonin, where he goes from a super fast sprinter to more of like a strong, but slightly less fast classics dominator. You know, and, and that will happen. You just get slower. You don't stay a super fast sprinter unless you're Mark Cavendish, I guess, um, as you get older and you tend to get stronger. So that would be a natural thing that's happening. It's just a little too early to tell if that's happening right now. But something to note, it, it's kind of interesting and stuck out to me. And the other thing is just the stages have been so hard. Even today was like most form, quote unquote, like formulaic stage. And like sprinters were, this was supposed to be a sprint stage, like constantly getting dropped and fighting back on. You know, Perry Nice is always tough. It has a reputation for being really hard, but it makes you wonder where like the traditional sprinters like Sam Bennett, who, who again today was distanced, and he finished like 11 minutes back. It just makes you wonder where he, like a rider like he fits in. You know, clearly Fabio Jakobsen is proving that you can be a big, burly sprinter who can still survive in this quote unquote like new era of racing. But you know, if, you, if you're not super, super fit, it used to be you could roll around as a sprinter and you could still get a few wins. That's not, you know, that's not the reality anymore. You know, perhaps as we get later in the year and the stage races get longer, it will mellow out some of these stages and we'll see some more like traditional sprint stages. But so far at Perry Nice, we've not had a single, single like regular normal, quote unquote, normal sprint stage um, like you would expect based on the parkour. And then like now the race gets hard. So. All right, so on to Terreno Adriatico. There's a lot of races going on. Um, it's a lot of races, but it, it's a lot of good races. I, I would say almost anyone, any star is racing um, with Strada Bianchi on Saturday, Perry Nice on Sunday, and then Terreno again on Monday. And in both Perry Nice and Terreno run this week. Um, really, all the major riders have to do one of those two races because. If you're targeting a classic, you want to do one of those to build up fitness for the classics in a few weeks. And if you're doing a grand tour later in the year, it's good to get um, stage race practice against some really stiff competition. What tends to happen is like the two biggest Tour de France contenders will do one or the other. I'm not quite sure why this is. My wife was asking, like, why isn't Pogacar racing at Paris Nice against Roglic? Wouldn't that be fun to watch? Um, I don't really have a great answer. It just tends, they tend not to to really tangle before the tour. They try to stay separate. I don't know if it's a mental thing where work on your own stuff. Um, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to like answer the press conference questions. Like, what do you think about Tade Pogacar if you're pretty much Roglic or vice versa? Um, or if, or if they just don't want to like show, show their stuff to the other rider, I'm not quite sure like what there is to be gleaned. Like, I always think that's overrated of like someone gets to know you and then they can beat you. Like, I could race against Tadej Pogacar all day. I'm not going to be able to do eight watts per kilo for 20 minutes and drop them. <laughs> like, you're either good enough or you're not good enough. And Terreno, I would say, is over after the first stage. The stage one was a time trial. Felipe Gama dominated. Remco Evenepoel was second. Tadej Pogacar was third. Um, Evenepoel was 11 seconds back. Pogacar is 17 seconds back. Right there, I think Pogacar's got the win in the bag. Um, it's almost impossible to imagine him not closing 17 seconds on Ghana over the course of the week. Um, especially it's a really mountainous race and it's really hard to imagine Evanipol holding off Pogacar by six seconds. If not just Pogacar doesn't even have to drop him. He just has to out sprint him on the uphill finishes and he'll rack up enough time bonuses to win the overall because Rimco has almost no finishing kick. So, um, I I'm calling it now. I think the GC is over at Torino Adriatico. So, kind of robs us of a little bit of 
of suspense at these two races. But one more note about Perinis, this also applies to Turno Adiratico, is just how important strong teams are um, at these can be at these stage races. Um, I used to kind of have the thought that like teams don't really matter, but you see that Yumbo basically closed the book on the GC after three stages at Perinis. Um, and now that UAE is stronger, it's, it's hard for anyone to kind of blitz, particularly quick step. You could imagine this happening in the past where they could try to catch them out on one of these opening sprint stages or transitional stages and wedge some time in between them and Pagachar before the mountains. But UAE is so strong now, um, Pogacar is not as vulnerable as it used to be. So it's getting harder and harder to imagine how you'd beat them. And as, as these like star riders, as their teams get better and better, it's, it's going to be very difficult for, for anyone that's not on that team. You know, and it's been shocking to see. Ineos had a decent day at Strada. They had Carlos Rodriguez, who's 21 years old, do incredibly well. I, I was really surprised impressed how he responded to Pogacar's attack. He, he you know, obviously couldn't hold it and go to the line with him, but it was a good showing. And Jonathan Navarez got seventh, I believe, and it was a really good showing from him. He's, he's turned into a pretty good classics rider, but you know, when they get to these stage races, which they used to dominate, they are just outclassed. Like When you watch both Perinis and Torino Adriatico, the takeaway is that Ineos is like no longer a force. They'll be at the front, like it looks normal, you know, it looks as it's looked for the past decade mid stage. And then they get to the end, they just don't have the riders to finish it off. They've let the talent kind of deteriorate to a point where they have some pretty good GC riders, but they don't have the best. Um, where their best option is Adam Yates, and he is, you know, over half a minute back. They really haven't got into the, to the difficult stages yet. And that, that is, mainly a failing of the team. If the team was stronger, they would have been at the front when Yumbo attacked and maybe they don't lose time on that first stage. Now they have headed into the time trial and uh, Danny Martinez and Adam Yates are not good time trialists. Wow, Van Art, Primoz, Roglic are two of the best time trialists in the world. So not, it's not a great situation. Um, it, it's been interesting to watch the power of balance with these teams shift. And Quick Step, who, who can, I was just talking to um, their bike sponsor yesterday Specialized who was saying how impressive they impressed they are with Lefebvre's ability to just you know keep winning no matter who's on the team. They've been good this year, but they are not as strong as they have been in years past. And UAE and Yumbo are stronger, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out this week. We're going to see like a little like a proxy battle that could portend the rest of the year at these two races. Um, and and my last thing I'll say about Torino is. It's going to be so fun to watch the Pogacar Rimco battle. We really haven't, despite you know, Tade Pogacar is the best rider in the world. He should be talked about a lot. He's won two of the last Tour de France's. We'll probably win his third this year. He's only 23 years old. Rimco's 22. He's very hyped, potentially talked about even more than Tade Pogacar, at least in European media, because he's Belgian and the Belgians love him potentially more than Wout Van Art, which I don't understand because Wout wins a lot. Rimco does not win very much at least at the world tour level. Um, but we've not seen these two really face off at many races. Um, they do like the European championships against each other, um, world championships against each other, uh, Lombardia, but that's not really, you know, Remco's not currently good enough at those world tour one day races for it to really be like a, like a huge rivalry. But, you know, where things get a little bit more even, um, and I'm using even loosely here is, 
like a one week stage race because this is like Rimco's bread and butter. He's such a good time trialist. He's better than Tadej Pogacar. Not many riders are better than Tadej Pogacar in a time trial and still have any ability to climb. Rimco's like one of the few in the world. So I don't think, I ultimately don't think he'll be able to win this race, but it's at, at least like it puts up some sort of resistance for Pogacar, who, if left unattended, if you remember Torino last year, he won by over a minute. <laughs> you shouldn't win a race this short by over a minute. And then yeah, he beat Van Aert by over a minute. And then the next, the third place rider was four minutes back, was Mika Landa. Egan Bernal was over four minutes behind him. I mean, it was, it was just a bloodbath. Like, he absolutely destroyed everybody. So I think Remco could put up a little bit better fight than, than um, at least everyone besides Wout did last year. So this is going to be a really interesting race. The, the time trial was super interesting. We saw like some, uh, some real chicanery from Ineos with Ghana and Quick Stop with Remco where they're putting like huge amounts of bikes in their team cars so that, that you know, there's an aerodynamic theory that a car, like a truck behind you, will actually push you along. It's true. Um, it's not as good as drafting. and you know, if you really crunch the numbers, it probably gave them about a second. Um, I don't think either of them is going to beat Tadej Pogacar by a second at this race, so it won't matter. But you, know, you could imagine in a 50-kilometer time trial that's you know about four times as long that you know you could gain maybe 10 seconds from from pretty much just free time by just stacking your team car full of bikes and driving it as close as possible to the to the rider. I saw some. I I thought they were pretty accurate. Um, I think they're estimates of Filippo Ghana and Remco Evenepoel's power per weight during the time trial. Ghana, of course, won by 11 seconds, even though he is less aero than Remco Evenepoel. Um, I think Ghana has, I was talking to some people on Twitter about this this weekend, they, they thought I was criticizing Ghana's position. I was just noting that as riders like Remco and Adam Yates have used aerodynamic specialists to kind of eliminate any space between their head and their hands, Ghana still has a little bit of, you know, it's a very fluid position. I think it's the most beautiful position um, in the time trial on the world tour, but he definitely has, he's got real estate between, he's got air between his head and his hands. Um, he's not, not quite as slippery because of that, but he just puts out so much power. I mean, I did a little, little calculation back of the envelope and he's doing like 530 watts for 15 minutes during this time trial. You try to go out and do that after you listen to this podcast today, um, good luck. You're not going to be able to do it. Almost no one on the planet can do that. Um, Remco is averaging about 400 watts for that same effort. So that's just showing you how arrow he is to be able to put out that much less watts and still be that close to him. Um, obviously, the power per weight does come into effect here. I think people over um, overestimate power like watts per kilo. Um, you know, if you're going up a 90% climb, sure, watts per kilo are all that matter. But you know, even the hardest climbs are not straight up. So you can be going slightly less watts per kilo for some than someone, but if you're putting out a huge amount of power, you might be traveling faster than them. And that's exactly what we saw on this relatively flat time trial where Evanapol put out 6.6 watts per kilo, Ghana put out 6.4 and went 11 seconds faster. It's a great representation of how watts per kilo isn't everything. If you do like a lot of Swift, you, you could be mistaken and to think that watts per kilo directly correlate to how fast you are going. Um, it's not totally true. The steeper the climb gets, the more important it is. But you know, even on a five or six percent grade, you can go faster at fewer watts per kilo if you're just putting out more raw power. Which Ghana is putting out more raw power than anyone else in the peloton at any given time. So he doesn't have to be quite. He doesn't have to be quite as light or as arrow as anyone else to go faster than them. I'm dropping this in 
after Perinese Stage 5 and Torino Adriatico Stage 4. A lot of the things I said earlier in the podcast are now null and void because of events that have happened since. Um, at Torino, we still have Tare Pogacar and Remco Evenepoel fighting for the GC. Filippo Ghana lost a little bit of time on an uphill finish today on Stage 4. Um, to be expected, actually didn't lose as much time as I thought he would. It was super, super explosive. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to touch on a few things from Perry Nice first because that's where a lot of the action has been. As it, as I expected, Wout Van Aert went into the time trial and won it and extended his overall lead. Primoz Roglic got a close second, um, and then Rowan Dennis got third. So it mean they had it means they had their second stage win podium sweep of the event, which is really ridiculous, um, almost unheard of. But they really blew away the other GC contender. Simon Yates from Bike Exchange was the only rider to really be close. He was 11 seconds back. Pierre Latour was 19 seconds back. The problem for those guys is they've been losing time on the flat stages. So then when they're getting to the time trial, they're just losing more and more time. But stage five rolls around. Um, and Perry Nice is such an interesting race. It's a really high quality race. Every stage is, is, is like seems to have GC consequences and has exciting fights for the stage wins. Even the sprint stages are marred by crosswinds. And a lot of these, um, they don't really have like intermediate stages. It's like either sprint or medium mountain, but it, it will be a series of maybe five or six climbs. None of them are that high. It's not the high Alps because it's really too cold to race up there at this time of year. But in, in my opinion, it makes it more interesting as many of these big mountain stages, the Tour de France, everyone just gets burned off. Like Primoz Roglic and Yumbo would just burn off everyone in the last two climbs. But with these smaller ones, you can isolate a rider. You can send their team out the back um, on the second to last climb because they've been trying to control the pace all day, but the stages aren't really hard enough to control it. Um, punchier riders can kind of cheat their way up these shorter climbs, less steep, less steep and shorter. Um, you would think it makes it easier, but it actually makes it harder because it allows more people to stay in the group, which makes the dynamics a lot more complex and difficult. But with 38k to go, Yumbo has like a full team basically, and then by like 36k to go on the second to last climb. Roglic is by himself with Rowan Dennis. Wout Van Aert's been dropped. Um, at first, I thought maybe he was just trying to control his effort, not peak too early, not put in too many deep efforts before the classics, but he frankly looks sick to me upon rewatch. Um, there's been like a flu, flu or a virus just like ripping through the Peloton at both Torano and Perinice. Um, He definitely looks like he was hit with it, which is... Uh, a, not great for the classics. That complicates a lot for uh, Milano Sanremo and then even Flanders and Roubaix. I mean, these illnesses, if you've ever been you know, trying to like train at a high level and you get sick, it can really set you back more than the average person would think. Um, but it also has massive implications for the team because presumably they've been in the bus together, hanging out together. Um, everyone else looked terrible today after dominating the first four stages they looked really really bad pretty much they were all dropped rowan dennis is the only one who was able to hang in there but even he got dropped a little, maybe a little bit earlier than i thought he would he was riding a hard pace in the front but but it wasn't so hard i mean that was evidenced by guillaume martin launching an attack and getting a pretty good gap um, dennis kept it in check he did his job really well but he didn't really whittle the group down as much as you'd think i mean this is a guy who's got the record ascent of the stelvio so um, and, and even Roglic himself, it was really hard to tell. Once he was isolated, he looked vulnerable. Um, he was really hanging back, riding conservatively. At first, I thought he was about to get dropped, but you know, maybe he was just playing it cool, um, letting the other attack and reel each other in, um, and just 
you know, that was his calculation that he'll let them burn, burn themselves out, fighting each other before they get into the higher mountains. But once Yumbo was, was wounded, Archaea like took the fight to Yumbo. Um, it was picture perfect, except we never got an attack from Nairagantana. So I'm not sure what was going on there. Um, Archaea really had Yumbo on the ropes and then just no Naira attack. Not the first time we've seen that. He seems not to be a great communicator. You'd think if you didn't have the legs, you, you would tell your team like, hey, let's play it cool today. Just stay around me. We, we don't have to use a bunch of energy setting up attack that isn't coming. Um, we did get attack from Danny Martinez. It looked pretty vicious. Um, Roglich didn't respond. Simon Yates did, but you know this is probably part of Roglic's calculation where he's like, well, I'm isolated right now. I don't want to expose myself to a counterattack. Simon Yates is strong, super strong, maybe the strongest we've ever seen him, but he just has no racecraft. Um, he like unleashed a big attack, pulled everyone back up to Martinez, got close enough that then Roglic could reel the rest of the gap in, and then they were descending down to the finish together. Uh, Brandon McNulty ended up winning the stage with an amazing solo attack out of the breakaway. The guy is super impressive. He's the real deal. Gets his first world tour win of his career and just looks so strong. I mean, this is his, I believe his third solo win of the year so far. So um, definitely, he's definitely taken a leap in the offseason. Um, big takeaways for to come. If, if Wow is sick, and if the team is sick, this race is wide open. Even though Roglic looks pretty good today, um, Pierre Latour was was jamming into the finish line, trying to pry open a few seconds from Roglic, who was sitting at the back, which is a little... I don't know if I've ever seen that from him. Um, he's usually the one sprinting, trying to put people on the back foot, trying to pry open gaps himself. So um, I'm not sure if he's playing possum or if he, he really is not feeling that well. But Pierre Latour seemed to think there was a chance that he would be able to get a few seconds at the finish line. But if, if there really is an illness running through the team, he will eventually probably, he'll, he'll probably fall apart in these uh, weekend stages, which means the race for the GC is wide open. <laughs> I guess we, Pierre Latour looks impressively strong. Um, we could see him win the overall, which would really shock me since I didn't think too much of his total energies team coming into the season. Um, these small fringe teams seem to have lost a lot of ground to the two dominant teams of the year so far, Yumbo and UAE. So I mean, that would be a huge win if, if they could, if he could come back and win this thing. Um, Simon Yates would, would also be a candidate to win, but I, Latour is only two seconds behind Yates and he's racing much, much smarter than Yates. So I would be really interested to see, especially in the last day in Nice, it's really technical. Um, it's like a racer's course, like a racer's race. I could see Latour carving out two seconds on that course to, to win the overall. But we don't know if Roglic is sick. I, I just didn't like a few of the things I saw from Yumbo. I mean, they looked like a different team than they'd look um, the rest of the race. So really something to keep an eye on. Um, and then over at Torino, much more boring race. That, that's, that's what stuck out to me this week is just how much more exciting Paris is than Torino Adriatico. I'm not quite sure what the, why that is. Maybe Torino has you know slightly more conservative parkours. Um, the Italian style of racing tends to be a lot easier. Um, there's not really a lot of wind in Italy, so there's not a lot of crosswind sections, which probably means um, if you're taking it easy during the flat sections with no fear of crosswinds, it's going to be harder for the race to break up once you, once you get to the climbs. That's potentially what's going on. Um, as I said earlier, Pogacar is just putting on a masterclass here. He won the stage today. It was just like a slight uphill finish, and he absolutely roasted everybody. Um, 
with, without even really looking like he put out of a ton, a ton of energy to do it. Um, it's, it means he's now the GC leader by nine seconds over Rimko Eminipol. The shocking thing about this is Rimko went into stage two with a six-second lead over Pogacar. And before we've got to any mountains, Pogacar's pulled back 15 seconds on, on Evanipol and is now the race leader. So it's, it's really showing these two riders are essentially the same age, 22 and 23 years old. Um, we've never really seen them go head-to-head in a stage race. And we're seeing like the difference in racecraft here where Rimko... Um, great time trialist, uh, better time trialist than Tadej Pogacar, which is saying something since he's one of the best in the world. But as far as racecraft and like punchy finishes, Pogacar is just going to eat Evanipol's lunch and he's going to continue to do, he has eaten his lunch and he will continue to do so for the rest of this race. Um, it's just going to be more of the same. And, and I'm pretty confident in saying that I think he's just going to keep chipping away at Evanipol, taking five or six seconds, every one of these little uphill finishes, uphill finish tomorrow. Uh, big mount stage on stage six, even if Evanipol can stay with Pogacar, which is um, not certain. I just can't imagine he's going to be able to take time on him, especially considering the stage finishes on like an alpine descent, which Pogacar is very good at and Evanipol is not good at. Stage seven is a sprint stage, so that will be um, no change in the GC, I I would imagine. All right, well, that sets up us up for some pretty interesting racing heading into the weekend. I will check back with you next week and I'll have some breakdowns going out to premium subscribers over the next few days. All right. Well, thank you and bye.